You're listening to the Pentaract Poetry Podcast, hosted by Anthony Etherin. Welcome to episode 16. As a follow-up to the first ever Pentaract Poetry Podcast, Christian Book and I met up a few weeks ago to share some ideas and drink some wine. We began by discussing the nature of poetic constraints. I've been thinking a lot lately about different uses of poetic constraints and theorizing, which is a bit dangerous. And I've realized that there are two ways to go about creating constraint-based poems, which I'm thinking of under the terms high constraint and lucid constraint. So I want to know what you think of this theory. Uh, Lucid constraint, for example, would be the palindromes I post on Twitter, where you've just got one constraint. I mean, you can bring in other tricks and devices, but really you've got one constraint and your idea is to make the best poem you can with this constraint. Whereas high constraints, I think of as more elaborate, uh, structurally complex pieces. So for example, my palindromic sonnets or palindromic sonnets, the anagrams of each other, the, the form of the poem is more aesthetically important than the content to some extent. So th- you're really looking at high constraint as a geometric ideal uh, to strive for. Whereas lucid constraints, you're just trying to take one rule and create the best poem you can with it. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to get your thoughts on that theory. Uh, it's an interesting idea that to imagine that there are categories of constraint. Um, let me reiterate what you've just said, to make sure that I understand it. <clears throat> you've said that uh, a lucid constraint would involve perhaps a single rule uh, that is somehow demonstrated uh, thoroughly rigorously, uh, and of course might uh, privilege uh, perhaps uh, a thematically intelligible outcome, something that would be sensible and uh, uh, accessible as a, as a demonstration of the potential of that constraint. We see one rule uh, fully investigated and we're satisfied by the experience of reading it because not only do we get to uh, see the performance of that constraint, but we also get some satisfaction from uh, seeing an uncanny kind of meaningful statement that uh, arises from it. Is that uh, consistent with your thinking? I thought that sounds consistent with it, yeah. It, I, I mean, sometimes with, for example, a, a palindrome, you might want to even disguise the fact it's a palindrome. You might want to say, look, this is just a lovely piece of writing. Do you like it? And then you say, you get to go, aha, it's a palindrome. When I was first uh, composing uh, Unoya, I would show up at readings and I would read passages from the work that would sound perfectly intelligible, that were euphonic and had lovely cadences that uh, uh, made, uh, you know, intelligible stories. And people would come up afterwards and be very excited by the merits of that work, thinking I had somehow uh, forfeited my uh, avant-garde bona fides, right, in order to trade them up for uh, some honest-to-God lyrical narrative. Only to discover, of course, in conversation that, in fact, uh, they had missed the major uh, feature of the work, its uh, univocal, uh, lipogrammatic uh, character, right, that is written under these extreme duresses, and yet seems so unbelabored, so effortless that uh, they never noticed it was written according to constraint. To me, that might be a feature of what you think of as a kind of lucid constraint, the idea that the work written under such duresses might in fact go unnoticed. Uh, it appears to be an effortless outcome. Uh, where uh, some of the virtuosity is is predicated upon your ability to sink the basket elegantly and gracefully on the court, 
without uh, much evidence of the work that now informed uh, your expertise. Um, the idea of a high constraint, now let me suggest to you that um, this is a, a little more complicated. You're suggesting that this might now require uh, you playing a multiplicity of games simultaneously, right? I can, I can stand in the boxing ring and box while I'm playing chess, right? I can do these two things simultaneously and they're absolutely contradictory. I can write a perfectly elegant sonnet that makes sense and uh, fits all of the formal uh, dimensions of that form while at the same time producing a palindrome. Moreover, uh, I can juxtapose it with a poem that does all the same things and is yet a, nevertheless a perfect anagram of the original poem. Doing something like that uh, now really does partake of the uncanny. If, there, if we thought there was something uncanny about those prior exercises, say, uh, uh, the univocal, the programmatic constraints of Unoya, people would look at that work and say there's a bit of witchcraft involved in making that. Uh, and I believe me, I would, I would entirely endorse that attitude. But by the same token, uh, it seems to me that people who, who eventually accomplish something of real virtuosity, demonstrating an enormous amount of grace under duress, will consequently try to figure out how they can make their own lives a little more difficult, right? Like, what, what can I do that would be even more amazing, even stranger, right? You know, can I, you know, juggle on horseback? Can I, you know, walk the tightrope blindfolded, right? Can I do all of these other stunts that would seem to be impossible because they incorporate a multiplicity of skill sets uh, that seem contradictory or disparate from each other? It's possible then to sacrifice perhaps some of the thematic uh, lucency of that work, you know, its coherence, for the sake of the uh, kind of demonstrable perfection of its uh, formal dimensions. Exactly, yeah. It's because I think all poetry, anyway, is about making these little compromises. You make compromises between imagery and music, for example. And so when you're dealing with what I call high constraints, you're one of the first things that goes is often the meaning. It, you know, it's not semantic in many respects, or syntactically, it's odd in some way. So I, I think of of my own work as the the short palindromes, the short anagram lines, poems. These are simple, accessible poems. Well, hopefully they are simple, accessible poems. I just feel like it's a very different experience when I sit down to write a palindromic sonnet or Sestina, or when I, when I know that it's not, the, the end product is not going to be that accessible. And I wonder with your own work, you say that you, know, you wanted to keep challenging yourself. Xenotext seems to be reaching more for this great structural complexity. And some of the poems you've done associated with it, most notably the two Xenotext poems themselves, uh, that's very high constraint because it's a really fucking hard constraint. And the poem uh, Nocturne of Orpheus, where you could have you could have just done an anagram of uh, When I Fears That I May Cease to Be by John Keats. But no, you also had to have the same number of letters in each line, it had to be a double acrostic. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. That's high constraint. Uh, well, I might uh, concur with you that a poem like uh, The Nocturne of Orpheus uh, might fit uh, your perception of a, a work that's written according to a high constraint. Uh, I mean, that, that work was written with uh, a person in mind. Uh, it was intended, of course, to be seductive and impress somebody uh, about whom I cared immensely. And I wanted, of course, to produce an artifact that uh, demonstrated the worth of them to me by you know, this exorbitant uh, outlay of effort. Uh, and yet, uh, an exorbitant outlay of effort means nothing unless it ultimately looks effortless. It has to look unlabored. So when you, when you describe, for example, Unoya, there are numerous subsidiary unspoken constraints that 
prevail upon that work. It's not simply just a univocal lipogram. It has all of these other attendant and uh, um, you know peripheral uh, rules that that it abides by almost um, um, perforce in order to make the project even harder uh, than uh, would otherwise be expected. And certainly among the immediate constraints was that it had to make syntactical sense and have some thematic profundity attached to it. And moreover, the syntactical uh, rigor of the work required that it be written according to a whole series of uh, parallel structures and internal rhymes that uh, occur right down to the letter counts in words and the syllable counts in phrases, not just you know in the syntactical uh, meaningfulness of sentences uh, that conform right to this really restricted vocabulary that uses only one vowel. There's all of these other unspoken and subsidiary constraints that are designed, of course, to up the ante, if you like, to uh, rival, uh, uh, I guess, uh, any other attempts that people might strive to commit uh, in order to uh, experiment with this form. I wanted to write a book that would just simply eliminate the necessity to ever have to do this form again. Like to write one example so absolutely uh, perfect, so exhaustive that uh, nobody would dare try to emulate it. And sure enough, when people do try to emulate it and they show me their result, I'm, I'm always uh, a bit embarrassed to say, well, actually, I saw that result already. I've already experimented with that little pathway you've trod en route to the poem that you wrote. I actually, you know, encountered all of those words before in that order. I, you know, uh, you know, managed to find that particular set of decision trees in the phase space of possible potentials for this particular form. Uh, to me, a, a work like that is, is probably still a high a work of high constraint, right? I probably don't typically write things that are, you know, simply dominated by one constraint to the exclusion of others. And then there are just simply a demonstration of my facility with that. I tell my students that if you're writing a sonnet, for example, a sonnet that you might think is perfectly good uh, because it conforms to the rigorous demands of a sonnet, it is written in 14 lines according to an iambic pentameter uh, meter uh, and rhythm. Uh, it follows a particular rhyme scheme and it says something of thematic profundity, voila, you're done. And I'd be saying, no, no, there's all kinds of other subsidiary constraints uh, that char characterize the history of sonnets that we admire. Because, of course, people write hundreds, thousands of sonnets over the course of you know, uh, literary history. There are thousands and thousands of these things. Uh, why is it that we care about only, really, comparatively, a few dozen or perhaps a few hundred out of that enormous subset? And I think it's in part because there are these other subsidiary constraints that go unspoken that would qualify them as falling within the category, not of a lucid constraint, I wrote a sonnet, right, that simply met the minimal criteria of this particular set of rules, but also did all of these other things as well, right, and did so in a manner which uh, seems uncanny, that seems unlabored, right, almost seems like a necessity. There's something about a poem, I think, written according to a constraint that feels not as though you wrote it, but in fact was something that you discovered. That it was buried in the potential of the alphabet and you unearthed it uh, miraculously, right? It's a meteorite from another world that you were lucky enough to find. Yeah. And I must it's admit just... that in, when reading many of your works, I feel that I have encountered something akin to witchcraft. Uh, I look at some of uh, your best works, those things that uh, probably have uh, the greatest um, 
impact online, uh, you know, generate a great deal of um, of support on Twitter. I look at that work and I say, I, I understand why you feel that is an uncanny response. You've learned something uh, about a potential with, embedded within language that has been so far, at least to this point, uh, under uh, appreciated, undiscovered. Right? That you've done something that really seems unprecedented. To me, that's what I'm looking for in poetry. I'm, you know, people might object to my taste, which is fine. I, they, I don't, you know, people don't have to like the things I like. They, they might, might find fault with my own proclivities and prejudices in literature, but I really am looking throughout the history of literature for those things that uh, seem unprecedented, that don't have models for them. And in part because they, they seem so virtuoso, they're just really very difficult. They look impossible. I wanted to be the poet who does impossible things. That's how I characterize myself up until now. I mean, you know, I don't know if I can so easily say I'm the guy who does the impossible thing because voila, here's Anthony Atheron who does things that are impossibler. <laughs> things that seem even more difficult than many of the things to which I aspire to do. Right? Well, first of all, thank you. And also, it's yeah, I know these, these uh, two terms I came up with uh, in the shower this morning. <laughs> Perhaps it should have been better thought out. But I, I can't have a feel there's still a difference in my attitude when I I'm writing with one constraint and when I'm writing with more. But I do acknowledge it's a bit murky because I don't think I've ever written with just one constraint. I think that's actually impossible to do. I've, I've, got, I've got grammar to obey. I've got, there are plenty of other devices that I've brought in. I've written palindromic sonnets that use intentional internal rhymes or syntactic parallelisms. There are all kinds of things that go into it. Uh, as you say uh, about sonnets in general, there's the best sonnets are not just 14 lines iambic pentameter there's there's something else going on and it's often a structural quality so in that yeah, sense you know if i tell my students you know your sonnet has to be thematically profound it has to be syntactically uh disruptive uh and engaging there has to be surprises right you have to have this really lovely turn right you know this volta is really important you know, it's often something that uh, goes unacknowledged as a sig signature feature of that form. As a constraint. As a, as a constraint. I'm, uh, here's the thing. Is I, I, I tell my students, I don't want to see these words all that you've produced already. Like, to me, I open a book of poetry and I look at it. And if I've seen all these words before, I put the book down. If I've seen all these words in this order before, I put the book down. I want to see a book that uses words I haven't seen before in an order that I've not seen before and uh, aspire to write poetry that surprises you because it does that and does so in a manner which has other features to it like euphony you know musicality uh, an attention to the sublexical qualities of words right that there's a certain kind of granular texture uh, like a toothiness to the language that feels elegant right in your hand or like it's got good mouth feel i suppose right like, mm -hmm. like there's something about the 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 utterance that that uh, feel seductive or enticing in its articulation just because you're, I don't know, perhaps using muscles or noises that you haven't otherwise seen before and they're combined in a manner which is really sensorially appealing. Uh, you have to have rich imagery, right? You're relying upon specific concrete diction and dynamic language. Very difficult for some poets uh, who would prefer, I think, to talk about ideas or um, uh, tell me what things are, not what they do. It might be that meaning is the least of your concerns in the writing of a poem based according to a constraint. I mean, T.S. Eliot, of course, is very famous. He said that meaning is the meat that the burglar throws to the dog, uh, that meaning might, in fact, be a happy side effect of doing other things well. 
when Lewis Carroll, you know, in, in, you know, tells us to take care of the sounds and the sense will take care of itself, I think, I think he states a very profound truth that many poets, certainly the poets I care about, uh, have um, uh, incorporated almost intuitively in their practice. You know, the work sounds beautiful. It's already musical. It has a song-like character to it, or, or at least it has a very interesting set of precepts about its cadences and rhythms that are, you know, musically interesting, uh, novel, and exciting to hear. And, and if I'm satisfied on that front, I almost don't care what the poem means. Like, it could mean almost anything. It could say, it could put those words in any order, and I'll be happy, right? Like, uh, much of what we admire in music is nonsense. I actually am not so invested in a message being important to me. Like you know, it seems to me that if you have something that you want to say, it's probably easier to say it very candidly, prosaically. You know, uh, uh, I do have some poets in you know in the course of my career who have said, "I've um, the reason I'm a poet is I've got important things I want to say that I think the world needs to hear." And I have, I think, somewhat churlishly said, if that were true, then the proper venue for doing that would be a press conference, not a poem. Poetry is not a great place, right, for ideas to be disseminated very, you know, broadly if they're important, right? I mean, an important idea usually gets uh, announced uh, in front of a whole bunch of reporters uh, while you're standing at a lectern surrounded by microphones. Uh, a poem doesn't typically do that. A poem is, in fact, an, a place where ideas go to die, like they, they, or they at least go to be, you know, mummified, uh, you know, put into a state of suspended animation, beautiful suspended animation, right? They're, you know, they're, they're crystallized, right? You know, there's, there's something about a poem that I think is tantamount to, you know, imprisoning a, a ringing phone inside a quartz crystal cube or something, right? <laughs> like you're hearing that phone ring, it's a beautiful red phone or a black phone, or a beautiful, you know, old fashioned um, dial phone imprisoned in a crystal cube. There's something about a formal poem a poem that's written according to constraint that reminds me of that kind of image, if you like, right? Yeah, yeah. there was a, a poet got in touch with me recently, and, and this poet's uh, someone who follows me on Twitter and I've interacted with a, a, a few times, and he wrote to me to pay me a compliment, and so I'm going I'm to brag by bringing that up. And he said that he likes clean, coherent writing. He doesn't like any kind of obscurantism. It's got to be direct. He, and he said, but he likes what I do. And he said, I think it's the same way I like song lyrics, even if they're nonsense, because they come with this great melody. And I, and I think that's kind of what you're saying. That there are compensatory mechanisms at play within uh, a work that uh, counteract or uh, augment right, the deficit that might take place elsewhere within a poem. Um, I, th I think sometimes you know, poets forget that a, a particular deficit in one feature, you, know, you would want to otherwise compensate for it in some other feature of the poem. Um, certainly, you know, meaning is, is one of those uh, places in the poem where the deficits, I think, are already presumed, um, at least in, in the avant-garde. You know, Georges Bataille, you know, once said, I think very famously, and I have to paraphrase, you know, poetry is that species of sacrifice. It's that ritual of sacrifice in which meaning is the victim, right? And that, and that poetry serves a certain kind of important social function because, of course, it, it you know, slaughters the lamb of meaning, right, on the altar of art. Uh, and it does so recurrently every time you write a sonnet. Like, if you had an important sentiment to communicate, you wouldn't, I think, spend a lot of time trying to make sure it was chopped up into, you know, 10 board feet, uh, you know, 14 uh, planks in a row, according to, uh, you know, your preferred rhyme scheme. That that would be a really 
a terrible way, in fact, to candidly communicate your sentiment to somebody you might care about, for example. It would be a really bizarre way to uh, relate to each other, right? There's something you know, fundamentally strange about poetry to begin with that in, you know, in its affectations and its yeah. artifices. Uh, that, that it, here's the thing I, I think that you, you, you might be pointing to with your thinking about constraint, this, you know, this little you know, offhanded dichotomy. There's a certain kind of low-level constraint that does you know, something very simply you know, according to one rule, and then, hey, there's the, what I do that's uh, you know, more complicated because uh, it's got a variety of different constraints. You know, I'm juggling on a unicycle while I cross a tightrope, right? Uh, as impressive as that is, uh, you know, there's something that's slightly absurd, right, about the excesses of, of that uh, stuntsmanship. Yeah, I want to do both. I don't want to just pick one of those forms of constraint. Yeah, if I, if I can ride the unicycle, why can't I learn to juggle, right? If I can learn to juggle and ride the unicycle, why not do it on the back of a zebra, right? Like, there's something about that that might, that might you know, entice somebody, you know, to um, greater uh, excesses of virtuosity. And believe me, I think that that's a... You know, a, a kind of fixation that I, I, I can endorse. I understand why people might want to do that. Uh, in Ulipo, I, one of the one of the things I love about Ulipo, and it, it, it's a, I think an underappreciated aspect of that coterie's thinking uh, about the topic of constraint, is that of course they show over and over again uh, the uh, resilience of rules uh, as a way of of uh, inspiring uh, poetry to that they that they're generative, right? That they that they 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 create, you know, living um, uh, you know expressions in poetry. That that simply following a rule uh, is useful. Like just simply following one slavishly, even like just just going with it uh, in order to see what might happen. But one of the the uh, most important features of that understanding that a constraint or a rule might actually have a liberatory, a paradoxically liberatory function, is that they they impose constraints upon the use of constraints. It's this kind of meta constraint, perhaps, that I think is one of the uh, underappreciated facets of Ulipo. And there's at least six uh, constraints I think that they impose upon the idea of constraint. And I probably can't enumerate them uh, uh, adequately uh, from memory, uh, given my uh, degree of uh, wine drinking right now with you. But uh, uh, the first of which is that it should be easy to say, like that it should be easy to articulate with the constraint. I'm going to write a novel that doesn't use the letter E and yet makes sense and tells a perfectly intelligible story. Uh, that's a pretty e easy constraint to identify. Just suppress the use of the letter E. Pretty straightforward, simple constraint, and that's already now a rule about a rule. Moreover, uh, uh, in the performance of the constraint, it should be exhaustive. You should be able to uh, explore that constraint with sufficient thoroughness and detail that it now becomes the unique case of it. Right, that you've actually exhausted its potential, and uh, there's no necessity now to investigate it ever afterwards, because you pretty much said everything that you could with that constraint. Uh, you want to intimidate your opposition, right? You know, immediately with its performance, right? <laughs> and of course, if you read uh, a lipogrammatic novel by Georges Perec, you read, you know, uh, La Disparition. Uh, I don't understand why you would want to try and reproduce that result, right? It's a, a sufficiently uh, exhaustive gesture that uh, uh, I think is going to go unchallenged for a century at least. Uh, like I, I would love to say, and I think I can say this with some cons, you know, confidence, 
that there's no point in trying to reproduce the result of Yanoya. That I wrote that book so thoroughly as to eliminate, you know, the necessity to try again for a long time. I would just say, like, you know, like att attempting to upstage that that book would be, a, you know, a, a difficult gesture, if only because I I really deliberately attempted to exhaust its potential. I tried to say everything I think I could possibly say that you could imagine saying uh, uh, with skill, you know, un under those under those duresses. Now that that would be me being, you know, a jerk about my own work, right? Simply, you know, <laughs> attempt, attempting, I think, well, you know, to make lay some heavy claims, hyperbolic claims about it. I, I would say, why would you bother, right? Like, you want to want to be able to make something so good that that it, it's peerless for a while, right? You know, and certainly that's one of the important features of a constraint under Nudipo, is that in its performance, it should be sufficiently rigorous and thorough that it becomes a peerless demonstration of that rule. That's an important feature of it. You know? yeah. Well, uh, we've, talked, we've talked about this before with Yunoya and how like, the only univocal lipograms that I write now have to have some other architecture. <laughs> like, they have to be a palindrome as well, or they have to be a sonnet. And it's, yeah, you've ruined it for me. You ruined it for me. Well, but, but here's the thing: is even those ones you wrote as sonnets, even those you know little uh, palindromes. I, I said, uh, yeah, I saw that. Go like on. I, yeah. <laughs> like I saw that from my from my airy, you know, while working on that project over seven years, I, I, I put those words in that order, and then I dropped them. I abandoned them. I cut them out. I, like 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 people will show me things, and they say, oh yeah, I tried to write a poem about Christmas. Oh yeah, I tried to write a little western. You know, with cowboys in it. I, you know, like I, I, I did these things. I can see, I can see some of the cheats that you're doing here. You're trying to expand the freedom that you have by, you know, allowing the use of why, for example. I already, you know, investigated some of those potentials already, and you know, eliminated them. Like, there's no surprises for me. And in many cases, you know, people will generate something. The, the interesting ones are those that are parodic. People attempting to undermine the merits of the book like that by parroting by mimicking or aping it in an effort to show how stupid the idea is. And I think all they end up doing is, of course, showing how difficult it is, right, to do it well, right? Like, like I would think that any adequate parody would be better than my book. Right? It would, it would, it would, it would stand instead uh, for a book like that. But um, the, here's, here's the thing, it's an enormous trade-off, right? It took me seven years to write that work. And I did so under an enormous amount of emotional uh, duress at a time of financial duress, uh, at a really um, difficult uh, moment in my own uh, background and career. I was a very precarious uh, moment in my life. And to sustain that level of investment and engagement for seven years is stupid. Like there's something, there's something really obsessive and deranged about uh, a willingness to subject yourself to, you know, uh, uh, that kind of... Um, uh, constraint. There's something about uh, the life of a fakir in that, right? You know, I will stand in the rain with a handful of dirt, and I will stand there in that pose until a flower blooms, right, in the palm of my hand, right? There's something about that that I think is crazy, and I don't recommend it to others. <laughs> I would just simply say, I think it's. Do, I think. Do it's, you think? Do you think there's something crazy about being a constraint? I, I, I think. I, well, let's put it this way. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can invest this amount of time and labor and energy in something with this amount of discipline and rigor and be crazy. It's impossible to do it unless you're. Like I think you have to be highly rational. You have to be very engaged. You have to be uh, disciplined. It requires uh, an athleticism that you know. I, I think most insane people are you know probably incapable of sustaining. Right? It's just you're gonna you're gonna be distracted. You're gonna be. 
um, you know, a, a subject to emotional uh, volatility that will defeat um, your engagement with something so uh, Herculean, right? Uh, but by the same token, it's a it's a, a weird waste of time for a perfectly sane person to you know to do. Right? It seems to me that no 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 person would would willingly subject themselves to such a masochistic endeavor uh, unless unless there was something truly investigative about it. Right? To me, this I did that exercise because I really wanted to know if it was possible. And nobody had ever put themselves to the test to determine whether or not it was truly possible. The experiments that people had done up to that point were disappointing and uh, terrible. But it seemed to me that nobody had actually broached the project with sufficient amount of um, preparedness. Right? They didn't, you know, approach it fully, you know, ready to deal with the investigative nature of it. And of course, if you dedicate uh, a sufficient amount of time to something, it becomes sufficiently interesting for you to continue to dedicate more time to it. Like, it's a, a, I think a feature, you know, identified by John Cage about things that would otherwise be difficult or boring to do. You know, if you find something boring, if you find something difficult, just keep doing it, you're going to be uh, continually re-engaged by it. And that seemed to be true of uh, work like Unoya. Um, it, it rewarded my curiosity. I did it because I was curious and uh, I wanted to see if it was possible. And of course, it constituted a kind of test of my own athleticism. I figured that it's going to be a test of endurance rather more than it's a test of merit. And I think that there's something about life that's embedded in that idea, that life is not so much a test of merit uh, as it is a test of endurance. If it's a test of merit, we eventually graduate to our level of incompetence and we fail and we're killed. But if it's a test of endurance, uh, you only ever fail at the threshold of success because you gave up too early. Right? You probably stopped at the moment when you probably could have persisted, right? And persistence, uh, you know, requires much less skill than talent, right? Like, <laughs> right? The persistence required to get the skill, right, I think is a foundational feature of most people's uh, engagements, you know, and poets. And here's the thing. Is I, and I say, I say this, believe me, with, uh, with all due respect to my peers, there's something about poetry that uh, attracts people who have an allergy to hard work, right? You know, the, the poets I admire are really invested in doing things that are ambitious and require a tremendous amount of hard work. And they're not afraid of people, you know, they admire people who are willing to invest the effort required to learn a new skill, to train themselves, to uh, adapt to uh, some discursive register that is far beyond the catechism of their own literary training. You know, they learn, they learn a science, they learn a... They learn math. I don't know. They learn how to program a computer. They learn. They learn something else in addition to their own poetic skills in an effort to augment the available repertoire of talents that a poet can exploit. Um, again, I think this is you know a feature of the constraints that Ulipo imposes upon constraint. You know the 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 fact that the constraint has to be simple to articulate, that it has to be exhaustive in its uh, execution, uh, but uh, you know, the constraint, for example, has to refer to itself. To me, that's a very interesting feature of the use of the constraint. The constraint must speak in the course of its execution. And there are many places in Unoya, of course, where the vowels talk about themselves, right? And the uh, univocal lipogram articulates the rules that govern it. I think this was a very interesting, you know, really anomalous kind of understanding of the constraint, that the constraint is even more admirable at the moment when it begins to talk about itself, when you can talk about the suppression of the letter E 
while suppressing the letter E. If I can talk about, you know, the vowel A in uh, a chapter that uses only A's, right? If I can talk about uh, the use of the letter E in a chapter that only uses the letter E. If we can refer to the constraint explicitly in this kind of nataleptic self-reference, uh, it adds perhaps uh, to the uncanniness of its execution. Exactly. Uh, right. I saw a tweet recently from someone saying that the worst thing a poem can do is refer to itself. And I thought this is very strange because if ever I tweet a poem that's, that does that, people seem to love it. People really seem to enjoy that aspect of poetry, that the poem about itself. Oh, well, I mean, uh, you, you and I, uh, of course, have a fond affection for some of the work of Pedro Portavent, mm. an extraordinary poet who uh, has written uh, several poems that I think are amazingly self-reflexive, you know, poems that in the course of writing a sonnet enumerate uh, their letter counts and syllable counts, actually, you know, talk about their own characteristics according to that form and uh, itemize themselves uh, poems that somehow seem to uh, refer to their own execution, you know, in the act of writing, in the very moment of its uh, instantiation. Um, the wild thing about the prejudice that your uh, critic named online, I think, is, and this is uh, to me an odd kind of concern to have, you don't like a poem if it refers to itself, is that in my experience, all poems refer to the occasion of their own production. That, that there is at least one way to read a poem, no matter what poem. It's like one of these convenient skeleton keys to a poem. To look at the poem and understand the poem is actually talking about itself in its own moment of production. That it says something about uh, how it was created. So, but for example, I speak metaphorically. If I were to read a poem about, uh, a lyric poem about uh, memories of me going out oyster catching with my family on a beach, you know, in, in Dorset or something, uh, uh, here I am going oyster catching, right, you know, with my family. Uh, what I think you're supposed to understand is that the experience of oyster catching, that that phrase is a metaphor for the experience of writing the poem itself. And that what you're getting now is a narrative that describes the occasion of the writing of the poem as an act of, or of oyster catching. Right? On the one hand, it might seem like a very lovely and uh, nostalgic story about uh, an elegiac moment uh, from your past that you're remembering and um, uh, conveying to uh, peers. It demonstrates, I don't know, uh, that you might win a sensitivity contest in an emotionally inflected world of expression. But by the same token, I think you're also saying something about the nature of the poem that you've written, that, you know, that this very act of writing the poem is somehow embodied by this metaphor of catching oysters, you know, and, and cultivating, uh, you know, your walk on the beach. That that's what writing a poem is like. And this always works. Like, weirdly, uh, uh, there is something about poetry that seems, I think, fundamentally to be able to refer to itself and discuss its own moment of creation. It's a very convenient thing. I, I, it, it, it's a, like a quick fix in the interpretation of a poem and there's some point at which i tell students look you once you've got this skeleton key and understand that a poem is almost always about the occasion of its own production the poem is always about itself uh, that's what poetry is it's language talking about itself uh, you have to kind of abandon this narrative because you're going to retell that same story over and over again it's going to get boring right you're not going to be so interested in it and it's like one of these insights that is so useful that it eventually becomes um, tiresome to recount over and over again. But it, it, it's, a very, it's a very quick way of understanding a poem. I would say that's one of the, if you don't understand the poem, imagine the poem is talking about it, the creation of its own production. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the, per- the person who said this also uh, says he hates my poetry. So, you know, he's an idiot. <laughs> anyway. I don't understand uh, yeah. why people would um, imagine that they're better people for hating poetry. Uh, like, uh, especially poetry they dislike. I'm, I, I think disliking poetry is a perfectly okay thing to feel. That, you know, not, not every poem is, is you know, going to find its target audience, you know. Um, uh, I don't like every song. I don't like every artwork on the wall, right? I mean, I, there, I have my own, you know, interests, my own proclivities and biases, my own prejudices about what I like and dislike. But I don't think that I gain much uh, by saying what I dislike. I don't think I'm a better person by identifying my loyalties. Um, uh, I think that the moment you actually say, this is a despicable work, I, dis- I dislike it, I hate it, and ergo I'm a better person for disliking it, that's when you signal that you're a Philistinic and puritanical in your attitudes. Uh, you know, I, th- I think, you know, the proper response to work that you dislike is to ignore it, right? You know, that, that, that's the safest way to acknowledge the merits of somebody else's, you know, uh, practice and validity, right? You should just live and let live. That any other kind of response tends to court a philistinic and puritanical attitude, you know, one that would want to see that uh, kind of work uprooted or destroyed or eliminated from the conversation. I don't think that most artists are willing to go so far as to admit that, even though they might say, I prefer this writer to that writer. I like this artist, not that artist. I listen to this kind of music and dislike this kind of music. Uh, they nevertheless will say, well, but let a thousand flowers bloom, right? You know, there's no weeds in the garden here, right? You know, bad poetry serves a function as much as good poetry serves a function in our uh, construction of taste. And some mm-hmm. poetry is just not intended for the audience that I am. I, just, you know, I would look upon it with, with, with much less affection than I look upon other kinds of work. That's all. Yeah, I really want to get back to this. Uh, but first, there are three things I want to get back to when we're just talking about constraint. Uh, the first thing is, when we talked about the sonnets and the Volta, I think this is quite important. We need to talk about things that might be called thematic constraints, if you like. But constraint isn't just this uh, letristic restriction that's thrown upon things. There's a lot more going on. Do you uh, see I, I, think, I think that if you show up to a poem, there is a whole series of unspoken demands of, upon the poem. There are unspoken constraints. Uh, that every poet probably shows up with as, you know, uh, accoutrements in the saddlebags, right? You know, um, you know for me, uh, I, I, I won't, for example, uh, rely upon abstract nouns in a poem. I will probably suppress abstraction immensely. Like, I, I only wanted to speak about specific concrete things. It's a side effect of a certain kind of training and uh, reflects the kind of poetry that I prefer. Uh, in fact, I can pick up a book of poetry and I will just simply have to open to a random page. I'd be curious about a book of poetry, open to a random page, and if I see that it is populated, that page is populated by a lot of abstract nouns, I won't buy the book and I won't read it because I understand that I probably won't be so interested in it. Uh, and uh, to me, a reliable kind of preconception about you know what constitutes good poetry you know, is informed by this attitude that typically a, a, a respectable poet, a poet uh, whom I might admire, uh, at least for me, uh, will rely very heavily upon specific concrete language. Uh, that uh, they will tend not to think in abstraction. They won't write about ideas, they'll write about things, and the ideas become a subsidiary happy side effect of that expression. Uh, and it's not even because I object to ideas. Like, you know, like I'm, a, I'm a scholar, I'm an academic, I, am, I live immersed in a world of ideology, a world of ideas. But to me, the, the, the best poetry that I care about seems to be rich empirically appeals to all the senses you know it, it, it points to things not not uh, ideas uh, 
And uh, language is very active. I mean, I can pick up a book of poetry and I can decide pretty much immediately whether I might buy it or not based upon the quality of the verbs used in the work. Does it rely more heavily on the verb to be, if that's the primary verb, if I see that the poet wants to tell me what things are and not what they do, chances are I won't buy that book of poetry. Uh, this is, these are unspoken constraints. These are merely subsidiary constraints that would characterize the act of writing itself. For me, I know that if I'm writing anything, I'm probably going to rely heavily upon concrete nouns, uh, you know, not necessarily to the exclusion of abstraction, but simply that that will be the, that will be the preferred, uh, you know, and dem demonstrably preferred uh, lexicon. Similarly, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to suppress my use of the verb to be. I'm going to speak, you know, about action rather than, um, you know, kind of copula constructions, you know, equal signs in my work. Uh, and they're in, utterly intuitive, right? They're just, they got, you know, they're, they're quick fixes for writing good poetry, in my opinion. Like, these are, you know, proven to be uh, really easy things to implement in a poem in order to make it better. And yet, uh, you know, there's lots of people who are naysayers who will continue to object, you know, and, and you know, find, find any form of prescription utterly anathema to their own practice, right? That it's impossible to actually say that you should follow some rules because these are proven to work, right? They, they actually uh, make your work better. Like it's, it's an immediate improvement upon the work. Uh, and I, I, I sometimes, you know, encounter skepticism, of course, which is fine. I mean, you know, people should be skeptical in response to what you might say aesthetically. But I, I do provide a lot of evidence. You know, uh, you know I could say, look, here's a line that, that that you know is written this way, and look what happens if you simply follow this constraint. It's made better, and they have to admit, yeah, you just improved it. And I improved it without having to think about it. Like I didn't even have to, I didn't have to do much creatively. I didn't have to be a genius. Like, like to me, there's you don't have to be a genius because there are so many um, really good rules of thumb that I think constitute unspoken constraints that are embedded already within the act of expression, and that we. You know, the job of a teacher is, in fact, to, to communicate to the student, right? To say, here's, here's a very quick way to, you know, build a chair that you can sit in and it'll be comfortable. Right? Here's a very quick way to, to make this thing work all the time. Uh, and you need to at least maybe master these sets of skills, understand these constraints thoroughly enough, so that if you want to, uh, I don't know, uh, in, uh, depart, perhaps, from the precedent set by these really good rules, uh, you can do so in a manner which will only augment their merits, right? We want to see that you make something better, you know, if you break these rules. Um, that if you decide to depart from these, you know, prescriptions, you, you, you actually are doing something exploratory that actually, you know, adds value epistemologically to what it means to be a poet. And that's hard. Like, like what, what, what I think I admire about your own practice is that I look at your, uh, that work and I, I feel I learn something every time I encounter it. And it offers permissions, like the, there's a certain kind of virtuosity to it that demonstrates uh, a kind of untapped potential in your own practice, like in, in my own practice. Like I look and say, okay, woof, you know, that, that looks like a hard thing to do. I think that I could do it. Uh, I can't imagine doing it as quickly as you can. Like I, uh, it would probably take me three months, not three weeks. Um, but I'd like to try. Like there's some, there's some, you know, call to join the circus and run away, right? when you see a magic trick that's so well executed. I, I think that that's what ends up happening, right? If you see, you know, uh, Penn and Teller, you know, in Las Vegas, you might, you know, imagine that you could run away and become a magician yourself, right? You could join the circus, so to speak, that there's some incitement to learn more because you want to participate in the wonderment of that activity. There's something about poetry that I think is enticing for that reason. The cost of entry is low. The cost of failure is low. 
And the people who are very, very good really do actually provide you with a seductive model for participation, you know, making it seem like something you might want to do. Same, same with musicians. I mean, I think musicians are a little higher on the totem pole of, you know, the cultural hierarchy for the same reason that, you know, you listen to somebody sing a song beautifully, you know, while playing guitar and you think that, hey, if I can afford a guitar and maybe a few music lessons, perhaps I could equal that challenge. I could run away and join the circus and participate in their aesthetic endeavor. You're absolutely right, of course, about all, all the, the rules and there's a whole list you have, isn't there, of using concrete nouns, using certain types of verbs and adjectives and uh, adverbs. Uh, uh, but the thing is, what's very interesting as well is that there are these, there are these objective rules which we know from the history of poetry work, but they often come into conflict. And so this goes back to what I was mm -hmm. saying earlier about poetry being an art of compromise. And it might say something about who you are as a poet, you know, how, how you have the hierarchy. I will simply note that I think that you have riffs, you have thematic obsessions, right? You have a certain kind of tarot deck of major arcana, you know, imagery and yeah. it recurs throughout the poetry. Like, like there's a certain kind of set of stylistic fixations that identify this particular poem, uh, despite its constraints, as being uh, uniquely the product of Anthony Theron's imagination, right? You know, I, I, oh. I've... <laughs> now I'm acclimatized to that, right? I understand, um, you know, what your uh, uh, motifs are, right? Like everybody, I think, has a has a preferred set of motifs, and they constitute a tarot deck right? that, that that may, in fact, be a kind of a uh, set of ritualistic grooves, right? You know, riffs upon which you rely, and they are recurrent features of the work. You know, I, I've I've confessed to many of them. They appear uh, in my poem, "The Perfect Malware." That's me. Uh, that particular poem. Uh, uh, which you can see me performing online. Uh, it's been published on a few occasions. That That is a poem in which I just turn the cards in my tarot deck, my own kind of major arcana. I'm just flipping the cards one after the other and pointing at them. And they include things like, I don't know, Stranded Astronauts or, you know, the Voyager Probe or, you know, the Black Monolith from 2001, right? Like these are these are things that I regard as talismanic in my own um, imagination, and they just pop up like other unignorable dreams to me. I can't can't shake myself of my fixations upon them. So, I think everybody has a kind of private tarot deck like that. Every poet, at least all the poets I care about and admire, seem to have interesting fixations upon particular motifs that constitute recurrent uh, guest stars in their work. Right? Like you know that that's a poem by that person because, of course. Uh, voila, the, that quartz prism showed up, right? I knew, I was, I was expecting that, right? <laughs> and Anthony's mentioning the moon again. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. There's, a, there's an astrophysical phenomenon in that work, right? And it's done, you know, according to these classical precedents. Oh, yeah, it must be a poem by Anthony Theorem because, hey, it's a palindrome, right? <laughs> there's something about those kinds of works that constitute, I think, stylistic fixations. They, they, they represent obsessions. Uh, and it could be that, you know, uh, that it's the idiosyncrasies of these constraints, these rules that characterize a style, right? That we, in addition to all of the formalized ones that are prescriptive, that constitute rules that you could uh, optionally follow because they're, you know, associated with a sestina, for example, or associated with a sonnet. They characterize a haiku, for example. There are nevertheless all of those unspoken ones that constitute the idiosyncratic and uniquely um, characteristic features of our own work that we cannot avoid that have to show up as signatures of our presence within the poem. Uh, and it varies from poet to poet. Certainly, I think the, the poets I care about have really interesting 
signatures. Like I, I look upon their work and think that 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 that's a reliable feature of their work that I can count on. Right. I would like to think that if you know a, po- a person is encountering my work, they know. Okay, well, chances are somewhere in this work uh, is the is the motif of a stranded astronaut. Right. That somewhere in this work, you know, the the ghost of the Voyager probe leaving the heliosphere, you know, is is part of the thing that haunts this poem. Right. It's just part of the the ghostly presence that you know characterizes a thematic fixation of my own practice. There's lots of things like that, right? You know, a book like uh, Crystallography is just me enumerating a certain kind of fixation on crystals, you know, certain geological fixations that I couldn't shake, um, and that are you know talismanic. They're tokens, right? In a in a kit of magic. Uh, um, accoutrements right? you know, that are just, just part of the repertoire of motifs that I return to. And I think, you know, poets, if they're smart, or at least, you know, self-reflexive, will accumulate those. They'll understand what they are and, and attempt to uh, proceed from there. They'll, they'll note them, you know, you know, pay obeisance to them, right, you know, make some homages to them, you know, let them be reintroduced over and over again. And they constitute, you know, stylistic uniqueness within their work, right? They constitute a constraint upon their imaginative potential. Yes, I think this leads nicely on to what we wanted to talk about next, because your, your list of compromises and what, what you go for, what you, what you choose to prioritize, uh, defines who you are as a poet. And uh, we've already said that perhaps I, I'm quite willing, and, and you as well, quite willing to let go of meaning. I think I, on, I on the great mixing board of poetry, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of sliders, you know, where you can accent different features of a poem. You know, I'll accent the sound or its visual appearance or its um, its uh, formal uh, uh, rigor, whatever, or its meaningfulness, its thematic profundity, what have you. And that's certainly one of the sliders that you can probably dial down immediately pretty low and be confident that you're still writing a poem is meaning. Like a meaning is probably the first thing that you could sacrifice very easily. You know, you can turn the you can turn that particular bass tone low, right? That frequency on your you know, your mod- modulator is probably sacrificable pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, and I would add to that as well, uh, uh, emotional content, which I, I you know, I, I want people to find their own emotional response. I'm not going to tell them what that should be. Uh, I, I recently tweeted, form is more important than feeling, which I knew would annoy people. And, so, you know, it did. So <laughs> is this the problem then, that we're, or not a problem, but is it just a fact of the reality of the poetry world that things have shifted more towards people caring more about meaning and feeling than about form well uh, uh, i think i think that, that you you perhaps are noticing something about the nature of our you know social moment especially among poets uh that being an avant-garde poet being concerned about uh con, you know a, a kind of formalistic virtuosity it's all off topic right people are very concerned about uh, responding to the political circumstances of their life uh, perhaps to the anxieties induced in them about uh, their own precarity uh, their own identity, you know, in this particular cultural moment, and they want to express themselves. You know, they want to say something meaningful uh, in response to uh, those concerns. And uh, there's a great deal of suspicion uh, about people who won't do that. Uh, you know, continue to um, you know uh, absolve themselves of some necessity to respond to that uh, set of concerns. Uh, uh, you know, I. I I made a blood pact with a handful of you know poets when I was very young, and I think I've still observed this uh, oath very well. I promised I would never write about myself. I would never say much about me. 
that no poem would be the perfect uh, expression of my own explicit uh, feelings. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about myself very directly at all. That I wouldn't be the center of attention in the poem. Like the fictional I, self. Uh, not even a fictional self, but but of course here's here's the point of this. Uh, like the, I'm on the side of negative capability. I I think John Keats is a heroic figure in Romanticism, right? Uh, more heroic to me than William Wordsworth, who provides the adverse argument that the egotistical sublime is the heroic moment in Romanticism. You know, and right now uh, uh, the egotistical sublime is the predominant form of poetry. You know, it constitutes uh, the uh, topic du jour. You have to speak in response to your own self. You have to think out loud about your own identity and testify to it. You have to confess to uh, um, its uh, successes and failures, its foibles. And if you don't do that, if you're not willing to uh, investigate uh, that well, uh, you're off topic. Certainly that seems to me one of the features of our current moment. That there's a, a, always been a, a suspicion by those poets invested in the egotistical sublime, there's always a suspicion about those poets who are invested in negative capability. Uh, and in fact, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if you attempt to practice negative capability now, right? You know, if you attempt to suppress your own self-expression so that you can make yourself available to forces beyond you, you know, and speak on their own behalf uh, non-judgmentally, right? So you can occupy other identities and, you know, uh, allow uh, uh, things to get said that you didn't mean. Um, you can get into a lot of trouble. You can suffer a lot of public rebuke now uh, if you court uh, that uh, that kind of aesthetic attitude. And even the avant-garde has already now expressed a great deal of suspicion about negative capability, even though, I don't know, for the last 150 years, uh, it's been heavily invested in negative capability. Now there's something that's considered treacherous about that attitude. Um, and yet, you know, uh, to me, the history of negative capability, the Keatsian model of poetry as a way of accessing forces beyond you to be a kind of conduit um, for forms of expression uh, over which you might not have much control, you know, that the writing of poetry is not expressive so much as it is generative, that you don't know the outcome in advance but are attempting to reach out towards an experiment whose outcome will be surprising, uh, you know, to uh, invite um, uh, ambivalence, right, uh, rather than certainty in the outcome. All of that constitutes to me an uh, important set of values, dare I say constraints, uh, upon my own thinking about what it means to be a poet right now. And uh, it, you know, the, despite, uh, you know, the contrary um, demand, uh, the current trends in, in poetry, I continue to feel invested you know, in the merits of this particular exercise, the experimentalism, the speculative character of poetry as, a, as an investigative activity, right? That I'm still in Area 51, I'm still trying to reverse an alien technology so that I can produce an anti-grav machine, right? So that I can, that in the act of reading a poem, you will float, right? You'll get a little epiphany and you don't know why. And it won't be because I said something with which you agree, it's because I would have said something that seems to me suggestive and evocative and weird. Uh, strange and beautiful. The beautiful, you know, the component of poetry is important to me. You know, and it, it's not. Right? I mean, beauty, for whatever reason, is right now not a predominant value in the avant-garde. You know, mm. beauty for its own sake, even like I'm saying, like just to make something beautiful, and that, that its beauty, perforce, adds value. Right. It, right now, meaning is most meaningful. 
being able to say something substantive that is important and significant that will have an impact upon the world and potentially change the world, you know, that will change attitudes or that will testify to your own attitudes at the very least, you know, just, you know, note as a form of passwords and passcodes, a set of shibboleths that grant you entry into transcendence, you know, because you've said the right ideas at the right moment. I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps based upon my training, uh, suspicious of uh, the need to do that, or at least the, the exclusive requirement that that occur. Uh, and in fact, I'm always more impressed, I think, by the people who say things by accident, right? You know, that, that do things, oh, yeah. you know, right? You know, uh, that, they, that, they, that they surprise themselves in the course of writing the work, that they made a discovery, they added epistemologically to poetry and granted us permissions as a side effect of that. Hey, here's something that looked impossible and voila, you made it possible. That's the kind of poet I want to be. Definitely want to be the poet who does something that people will dismiss because they assume it must be impossible. They, it doesn't conform to uh, tastes of the time. It seems to be off topic, doesn't uh, fit very comfortably within uh, groupthink. Uh, I probably admire the poet uh, you know, who, who uh, stands aside from you know, those prescriptions. It, like in some sense, stands aside from those kinds of constraints. Hey, those constraints aren't for me, right? Those rules uh, aren't for me. I would prefer these rules instead. Uh, like it, it could be that you know the disparity among poets is really boils down to a uh, disparity of taste among the rules that you like. Right? I like these rules, not those ones. Right? I care for these prescriptions, not those ones. You know, I like this harness, not that one. Right? These chains—they're more colorful than those chains. Right? Something yeah. about that might be at play. You know, in the prejudices, the you know the kind of. But there's still, there, is, there is there is definitely something in that starting point of. You know, I'm, am I a servant to the poem, or is the is the poem doing my bidding? But there was a a tweet this morning, which I I jotted down here because I knew I was talking to you. I thought you'd enjoy this. The, somebody asked, "What's it important that poets are writing about in these times?" And of all the replies, and there were a lot with lots of suggestions, I didn't see anyone say, "Write whatever you want." It it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think that that uh, that's a very interesting insight to see. Uh, I mean, you know, Twitter's not the world. Twitter's ten percent of the world, maybe at most. Um, I think it, I think of course it's very telling that somebody that nobody, perhaps uh, very vociferously or forthrightly, at least there was no contingent of people that weighed in in response to such a question with uh, poetry's freedom, write whatever you want, right? That there that uh, you're not obliged to do anything, right? Like that. That whatever prescriptions we might impose upon you are purely optional, right? That there are, you're not obliged to do anything, really. You know, that uh, the adoption of a constraint is like uh, uh, the horse picking the harness, right? Like, the, the, you know, choosing your bridle. Um, I think I'm bothered by the fact that, that there's a lot of poets who think that they can tell other poets what to do. And, and feel that they're better poets because... They can tell poets what to do, and that that strikes me as a little worrisome right now. That 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 there's a, a forgetfulness about the liberatory potential, the the, the the potential for freedom in poetry. That that, that poetry is fundamentally a, a form of freedom, um, and that uh, that we should be, I think, invested in guaranteeing each other's freedom, right? In in that milieu, the fact that there are now people who think that uh, that the constraint that you might adopt must apply to all. Uh, I think it's a very bad uh, bad trend, you know, in, in 
poetry. It will, it will suppress um, the ability of people to be candid about their work, and it will, I think, compromise many values that we that are, you know, uh, happy side effects of doing things that are invested by freedom. Things like, you know, beauty, right? uh, sublimity. Um, uh, the experimental or investigative characteristics of poetry. These seem to be under threat right now uh, uh, because everybody's supposed to uh, supposed to say one thing or write one way, right? Uh, or within a very narrow set of parameters, a pretty narrow alleyway, right? The, whereas I would have thought that poetry's job is to you know, make manifold the variety of ways that people can use language and to ensure that they are demotically um, uh, accessible to everyone, you know, that, that there's a wide variety of things that can be done. You know, you wouldn't want to live in a world where you can only play one kind of musical instrument and you can only play it one kind of way according to one kind of genre. And there's an impulse among poets, it would seem to me, to, to narrow the breadth of potential discussion about what constitutes the available repertoire of skills at the disposal of poets. You know, that there's an attempt to be reductive now. Um, and in fact, an intolerance to contrary attitudes, right? You know, like I disagree, like, like to be able to say that even, like to, to note, maybe, maybe this is a, a bad idea, right? You know, is... Yeah. Everything's considered a political act. You've that. noted that uh, one of the constraints that's now perhaps imposed upon poets uh, is this idea that uh, everything is political. The personal is political. Every poem is a political engagement. Every poem must be a political act. Uh, I look at that and say, well, that that's a, a prescriptive constraint. It would be a generic kind of understanding of what constitutes a poem. It's not wrong to imagine that. You could adopt that as a as a as one of your uh, optional forms of bondage to poetry. But to imply that you must impose it upon everybody, that it would constitute a way of distinguishing that you're a better poet than anybody else because you, you know, uh, conform to this sensibility, seems to me uh, thoroughly autocratic. It seems to me that most of, most of what constitutes the important features of our life are not political. You know, friendship, you know, your relationship with a child you know, in your family or, uh, you know, preferences in food or, uh, you know, art. These are not, you know, areas that should be transacted, right, by political loyalties. You know, they're supposed to be those expressions of your freedom and your engagement with people uncontaminated by uh, social loyalties. You know, they're supposed to be, you know, the private loyalties of the sovereign individual, right? I care about my, I care about my mom you know, no matter what her politics are, right? Because she's my mom, right? What do I, what do I care what she thinks about, you know, the world politically? I should just care about her because I love her. I, I, I think I find the, the, current, the current mania for philistinic puritanical behavior worrisome, especially among poets, because one of the reasons I became a poet was because it was one of those areas where there was a lot of conviviality, right? Uh, there's a great deal of tolerance for uh, abnormality, right? Right, you know, the anomalousness, right, in thought was considered a virtue, right? That your willingness to uh, be candid, to brook, you know, no orthodoxy, uh, were considered uh, valuable features. It seems to me that right now those those characteristics of the poet, you know, historically, are in abeyance. Right, you know, the poets are now defined by their willingness to conform to. Uh, perhaps a narrow set of attitudes, aesthetically, if not politically, and that uh, you distinguish yourself uh, meritoriously by your uh, exuberance, you know, for these uh, norms. 
when in fact, uh, you know, the whole job of being a poet is probably to question every norm uh, within your own discipline, to figure out how to break the rules in a manner which is wonderful and elegant and, you know, shows grace and courage, you know, especially in the face of duress. I, I think that that's what I like about the merits of the work in the avant-garde, the history of the avant-garde, is that uh, despite its many failings, there's lots of, you know, lots of cause for uh, complaint. It was one of those places where you could go to test out an idea with a reasonable assurance that it wasn't going to be rejected out of hand, right? You know, there was a lot of room for lateral thinking, right? You know, you could be yeah. capable of uh, brainstorming an idea without much, you know, concern for rejection and immediate dismissal. That doesn't seem to be the case right now. The, we are we're poets who are very interested in constraint, and yet we're surrounded by constraint, you know, uh, socially. And it's not pleasant, right? you know. Uh, there's a great deal of enforcement of rules upon what poets can and cannot do uh, without permission, right? I mean, there's some way in which now uh, the world of poetry has become a kind of unvoted tribunal judging the merits of each other's work <clears throat> according to standards that we've never actually voted on, right? There's no demotic element to this at all. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, surely, you know, under those circumstances, you would say, well, these are a, a kind of constraint that would um, inflect or, you know, uh, generate perhaps, uh, you know, forms of expression, but uh, they've not been adopted voluntarily. You know, they're not, they're not the product of, of choice. I know among my students, they, they balk at any disciplinary notion of, of form, right? You know, they, they, they object to rigor, but they won't object, right, of course, to, you know, thematic obligations, right? You can only write about certain kinds of things and not other kinds of things. They'll, they'll happily abide by those rules, right? You know, there's certain ideas that you cannot broach. There are only way, there are only certain kinds of things that you can say and, you know, others are forbidden, but uh, they won't, they won't see those as, you know, an expression of a certain kind of, you know, autocratic imposition of rules. They'll, they'll say, why are you making me write a sonnet according to this, you know, absolutely arbitrary set of rules? This is absolutely totalitarian. Right? And I'm going, man, it's, it's perfectly optional. <laughs> you don't have to do it, right? Uh, I think that poets, when they, when they point to a set of rules and say that's a terrible bunch of rules, right? You know, that, that's an expression of a, a, a politics I despise. Uh, those are ideologically motivated uh, rationales for explaining why you don't adopt those rules, why you won't engage with them. And I would say there's nothing wrong with, you know, ignoring particular kinds of rules within poetry. You don't have to write sonnets. There's no obligation to do so. Nobody has to write any kind of poetry according to any kind of um, uh, rule-based prescription. But to imagine that you're better, a better person, Right. I don't know, maybe a more ethically advanced person, because you ignore such rules, you, you know, despise them, you dislike this kind of artwork. I look upon those kinds of poets with some dismay, saying you're not a better person because you hate poetry, hate a particular kind of poetry, even bad poetry. I don't think you're a better person because you like it. I, I, I just don't think you can lay claim to some, you know, um, sovereign improved status, right, because of it. I would just say that it, it reflects a certain kind of proclivity, an aesthetic attitude, a set of connoisseurship doesn't have to conform to everybody else's attitudes, right? Yeah. yeah. This is something we've talked about in private before, because I've had a few experiences, and I know you've had some too, people who basically are saying to you, what you're doing is not poetry. 
this has been going on for a long time just as an aesthetic attitude you know I, I try to promote a lot of visual poets and I'm often confronted with people saying well this isn't poetry why you know why is a poetry press publishing this when you look at my own work there are people who, who just have a problem with its existence like this, this kind of stuff it's not like they're, they're saying well they are saying it's a bad poem but they're really saying it's bad because I shouldn't have done it yeah, I, I, th I think that that's, I think you've hit upon something important here to note, that when somebody objects uh, to a work saying it's not a poem, that it doesn't conform to a set of constraints that I imagine a poem must fit, right, a set of strictures to which it must comply. It's not a poem, and it has no right to exist, you know, in that milieu of poetry. And uh, one of the great objections, of course, to conceptualism, the, you know, my gang, is that uh, our attitudes towards poetry are, I think, uh, much more demotic than even the most, uh, you know, radical poets among poetry. You know, the, uh, there's a great do deal of discomfort when we point to something radically unpoetic and say that might, in fact, be a great poem. In fact, something worth pointing to and emulating within the milieu of poetry. A great deal of anxiety about that because, of course, you know, poets are working hard to make the best poems that they can. And if you come along and you say, well, actually, you know, you've been upstaged by this guy who did something that was completely unconscious, uh, you know, simply unpoetic, not functioning within the genre of poetic activity at all. And it may in fact be extraordinarily important, might in fact upstage anything that's been done to date in this milieu. You know, it might be something really important to consider because it's inadvertently a poem. In the way that a sunset is inadvertently a poem, or the sunlight, you know, uh, striking the rose on your kitchen table is a poem, or the, you know, the uh, the ant crawling across a grain of salt uh, on your patio is a poem. Like people, I think, uh, you know, perhaps are uh, hidebound maybe in their attitudes about poetry and really want to protect the privilege of being able to identify what a poem is and what it isn't. I mean, I'm not suggesting that everything is a poem all at the same time. In fact, I would be probably suggesting that, a, you know, not everything is a poem, or, or perhaps everything is a poem, but just not all at once, right? You know, like that, that at some point, you know, a poet is somebody capable of, of seeing an otherwise banal feature of their lives in a manner which is illuminating, right? It feels to be imbued with an immense amount of importance and significance, even though it's absolutely banal. There's something about, I don't know, the combination of words that emulates that experience. You know, you write a little haiku, that uh, is intended to evoke uh, that the warmth of the sunshine on the marble countertop, you know, in the morning, you know, beside the cup of coffee. There's something about that that little bit of intimacy with reality that um, is supposed to make you more sensitive to the world at large. And if somebody comes along and says that's not a poem, I, I don't think there are many poets who would do that. But if somebody comes along and says that quality of attention is not poetic because it wasn't a kind of attention produced by a poet. I feel suspicious of that. I look and say, I think everybody is inadvertently a poet. Like people do things and say things that that are accidentally, you know, uh, within the purview of poetry. Moreover, I, I'm I'm curious about the limit cases of what constitutes a poem. And conceptualism, uh, I would say to its credit, uh, pays very close attention to those moments when somebody says, "This is not a poem." That's when we perk up and want to go and look at that. We want to go and look at that body. Right, you know, that's sitting beside the ambulance that's been run over by poetry. The poetry ran over that thing and said, that's not a poem. And they, and they you know, they managed to eliminate that thing, you know. Uh, we're going to go and want to investigate that, you know, uh, that 
object of dismissal. Let's look at that, you know, do an autopsy on it and just verify what constitutes the limit cases of what constitutes a poem. Because it varies over time, right? You know, there's the, you know, thing, things that would have otherwise been dismissed as unpoetic now have cachet as poetry. Um, you know, I, I, if, you know if, if you can start publishing a stock index as poetry, as you know, you know, some of my peers have done, and do so in a manner which is convincing, like actually is credible, like you come away feeling excited by that permission, that sense of permission that's granted to you by acknowledging the possibility that, that perhaps on this day that particular stock index turned out to be poetic. I think you're making a contribution, like you're showing something unusual about the nature of poetry and contributing to its freedom. And to me, that's what I'm, like, I'm a constraint-based poet interested in freedom, and I'm trying yeah. to show people how you can be free, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm not, I do not like the autocratic sensibility. If I have a political attitude as a poet, it would be just that I dislike people who tell me what to do, right? I don't like people who are autocratic. Uh, and... Ultimately, you know, uh, I, I would say that my gang are curious about, you know, responding to an autocratic attitude in, in the midst of poets. You know, like when they say this is not a poem, we go, maybe it might be. Like, 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 let's take a second look at that. People say, you know, you can't, you can't, you, you can't point to that and call it a poem because uh, that that's a gesture you're not permitted to do. Like that. Uh, most recently, it's a colonized gesture. I'm going, feeling colonized about it, but except in your demand to imagine what a poem could be, right? You know, say you're, you're the ones imposing restrictions, you're the ones trying to expand the boundaries. Personally, I'm, I'm a formalist. My poetry is all about form, and my publishing as well is all about different, different types of formal poetry, which includes uh, visual poetry, because it comes from the sort of calligram pattern poem mm -hmm. tradition. I'm interested in seeing all these things side by side. I, I want to see a classic, uh, like a, tr a triolet or a, a well-crafted sonnet right next to some crazy asemic visual poem. That right? uh, kind of, uh, you know, attitude, um, uh, that kind of, that kind of demotic attitude, at the very least, you know, uh, an expansive attitude about poetry, I think is, uh, desirable. I mean, I, I prefer, prefer not to dismiss things out of hand. Like, I, like I have my own taste. I have my own, you know, you know, uh, predilections, my own obsessions, uh, and I advocate on their behalf. Like I, you know, I, I won't apologize for them. You know, there's a lot of people who suggest I have to apologize for them, and I refuse to do so. I don't think you have to apologize for your preferences, your tastes. Um, but by the same token, I, I, I don't think that your tastes are somehow should be the standard by which uh, other work should be judged. Right? I just simply think that. You know, your tastes are are a wager that you make personally. You know, on the on the you know the crap table of uh, you know the casino of poetry like I'm making a wager that visual poetry might be important I'm making a wager that you know uh, these little bits of witchcraft and formalism might be important I'm making a wager that my own peer group right among the conceptualists you're gonna read them a hundred years from now right I'm making a wager and and I'm putting those bets on the table at, at, at some cost right like to me it's that's the important thing is that you, you put yourself at risk right by making wagers about your taste the same token, I do not want to see some other poets or other you know poetic schools uh, disappear or be diminished, like eliminated from the board. Right? Like that is not my attitude. I just refuse to imagine that that would be an adequate way of being a poet, whatever it might be. Like like uh, there's lots of poetry that I'm I find distasteful to my own predilections. I would I would find it I would find uh, any impulse to eliminate them from. Uh, 
the game to be absolutely uh, despicable. I would be very concerned if I saw that occurring. And right now, uh, you know, the, it, it's it's now acceptable to imagine that you can eliminate pieces from the chessboard. Mm. Uh, you know, that 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 you know, it's an infinite chessboard, and there's an infinite number of pieces that can occupy an infinite chessboard. And people are imagining, well, you know, you got to eliminate that particular pawn because it, that that can't, you know, that that pawn thinks the wrong thoughts about poetry and can't can't be allowed to exist on the board. To me, that would be a, a cause for immense concern, if it, especially if it's coming from poets. If those attitudes are generated in the milieu of poetry, yeah. You know, I was a young man in the '80s. Everybody older than me wanted to ban stuff, right? You know, now everybody younger than me wants to ban stuff. I've never been in a position where <laughs> stuff <laughs> like. Here's a question. Like comfortable in the world, right? <laughs> but here's here's something I really want to ask you. Sure. Because you know we can't we can't just sit in judgment over others. Let's look at our own corner of of poetry. Mm -hmm. Do you think that perhaps you know I'm thinking about what I just said about writing having a nice well-crafted tree lay next to a crazy asemic poem. I think there are people who don't want that from both sides. I, we definitely know of some conservative formalist poets who mm -hmm. really don't want to see this stuff involved. There, sure. there are some formalist poets who, and in fact, a couple of them who have said nice things about some of my more traditional stuff and then slagged off my more experimental work without realizing that I'm the same person. Do you think it goes the other way too? Do you think that there are too many people in the avant-garde now who, who are too negative in their attitude towards tradition? I would, I would simply note that right now the avant-garde uh, is a highly reactionary, is an, occupying a very reactionary moment. As you've noted, you have uh, some conservative peers who I think, uh, you know, uh, their engagement with formalism should uh, induce them perhaps to read with interest works of avant-garde engagement that are formally inflected. But they dismiss it. They say that's the wrong kind of formalism, right? Similarly, in the avant-garde, there are certain kinds of, I think, uh, experimental practitioners who are extraordinarily hidebound. They, they, too, have puritanical and philistinic attitudes. Puritanical because they, they privilege a virtue over um, talent. Uh, philistinic because they believe that they're better people because they dislike something. Uh, uh, and to me, the, those two things are, the, those two attitudes aren't uh, consistent with the openness that I would say characterizes poetry in general, at least historically. Certainly the avant-garde uh, is capable of more permissiveness in this respect. Like, you know, you're not a better person because you dislike a poem. And, you know, you're, any form of puritanism seems to me to be anathema to the experimental speculative characteristics of the avant-garde. And yet right now, the avant-garde has forfeited much of its playfulness on behalf of of, uh, of uh, um, seriousness. Like, there are lethal doses of seriousness now among the avant-garde that make it uh, and perhaps uh, difficult or impossible to actually conform to it adequately. Like, you know, you're not going to pass the purity tests. You're going to fail every single SAT score, you know, like that you might aspire to accommodate now in the avant-garde. Um, I used to joke that, uh, you know, one of the, my great favorite texts uh, that I love to read, The Pleasure of the Text by Roland Barthes, an absolutely amazing essay, a wonderful essay. If your listenership has not read this, I encourage you to do so. It's an amazing argument for uh, reading. The Pleasure of the Text uh, was often cited as an important feature of avant-garde practice, that you want to 
produce a work that is capable of inciting pleasure. And yet the avant-garde seems to have uh, suggested that, you know, so long as that pleasure is reserved for the experimental poet and nobody else, that's the sovereign position to occupy, right? right? I feel pleasure when I wrote this poem, and you're not intended to feel pleasure when you read it. And I would say that's not a great trade-off, is it, right? Like, that's, that's in fact a selfish, weird act of bullying, perhaps, you know, even in the avant-garde. To say, I feel, I feel the pleasure of the text. I understand its uh, libidinal characteristics. It's, it's uh, you know, almost erotic excesses. I got it, and I practice it. I demonstrate it, but I don't, you know, reserve your participation in it. You know, I don't encourage your engagement with it. I render it obscure and hermetic and strange and alienating an experience. It's not playful. It's not, like, you don't come away feeling satisfied by the experience. Unless you're among the elect who's learned the full catechism of that training. There is something slightly priestly now about the avant-garde in its you know, demands that you conform to uh, orthodoxies. You, know, you have to have adopted a set of theoretical principles, critical attitudes, almost academic uh, shibboleths, passcodes, right, that indicate your entry into uh, uh, an illusion mystery that poetry is. And I would be saying, no, I think poetry is for everyone. You know, you're supposed to listen to it like you would listen to music, you know, or bird song. You're supposed to appreciate it the way you would look at, a, you know, the sunlight glancing off uh, the marble countertop on your kitchen counter in the morning when you're making a cup of coffee. There's something about it that should be just available to everyone as, a, as an insightful, epiphanic experience. However, however you manage to, you know, seduce that reaction from people, right? It's something that shocked me. In, in the poetry world that I can understand people not liking what I do, but I can't really understand why someone would think I shouldn't have done it. I don't, because if, you know, if we're talking about something that has no kind of moral edge to it, I'm, I'm not making any sort of outrageous statement. It's just a work of art. I can't understand how anyone would think that that's something that shouldn't exist. Sure. It's probably coming from somebody who is not themselves. Uh, a poet so well recognized as you, right? It's probably not coming from somebody so well talented as you. It's probably coming from a position of, I think, uh, a philistinic and perhaps even puritanical ressentiment, like a, a notion that uh, you have an unearned um, attention doing something that is so disparate from this person's proclivities that it seems unearned, doesn't seem to be justified or warranted, right? But to imagine hey, if, if, if the work doesn't conform to this idiosyncratic obsession of mine, it must be so terrible that I actually have to weigh in publicly. I have to, I don't know, show up in person to vote against it uh, and testify to my negative vote. I would say it's stupid. Like, you're just a Philistine. You know, and, and here's the thing is that uh, there will be people who will object uh, to the existence of a Ruby Cower because she's, um, what, she must be on her way to being a multimillionaire by now, outselling me as a Canadian poet by at least two orders of magnitude. Um, uh, I imagine that there's objection to uh, her success uh, for no similar reasons of ressentiment. That just shouldn't what exist you, what do you think it doesn't inform my own preconceptions about what constitutes an adequate form of poetry. Now, from my perspective, I mean, the kind of work that she does is exactly 
uh, opposite to what I do in some sense. I suppose disparate, yeah. you know, radically, radically disparate from what I care about or you know uh, worry about, right? But I do not object to her, you know, to her success or existence. I, in fact, I, I, I'm grateful to know that it's possible to be that successful. That that, that I look and say, oh. Whew, I, I wish I had thought of that. I wish I could do that. Like uh, I hope that I, I hope that I can figure out, you know, find a path that uh, leads to the, you know, uh, one of the gates of paradise, you know, somewhere on the mountain. You know, um, uh, I can't object because it would just seem to me that it would be churlish. Uh, I'd be a sore loser, right? You know, under those circumstances, right? You know, yeah, this is, culture, this is a lot exactly. of sore losers, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the only thing I have in common with my poetry has in common with uh, Rupi Kaur's poetry is the fact to be like brevity short <laughs> yeah other than that it's the complete opposite kind and, of thing and, and you publish it on social media <laughs> yeah oh well yeah okay too wow i might you know have i got a chance have i got a shot at starting <laughs> but yeah it, it's i see parodies of her and and after a point it's just embarrassing i think it would person. be embarrassing to be the kind of person who might dislike a, another poet because they write poetry that you dislike you know it doesn't seem mm. to me to be a a great way to be in the world. I, I would say there's no point in disliking uh, a poet like Rupi Kaur and, and resenting her success. It's just, you know, you should care about your own success. You should be figuring out how to make that possible. The success of others is merely exemplary. Like I would say, it provides permissions and models and, and uh, notification, right? You know, uh, signals, you know, traffic signs about how, how you're doing. And comparing yourself to others Within that milieu of poetry is, is I think, um, deleterious, if only because uh, it means that you're not concentrating upon your own improvement. You know, you should be making your own bed in these matters. Um, uh, inevitably, and here's the thing, is that people forget that the poets that are famous now, the poets that enjoy an immense amount of prestige, who have suddenly received any, you know, some cultural recognition and institutional support, they, they, that was not indemnified from the start. And they didn't always receive it. It wasn't always given to them. You know, they were they were in fact um, poverty stricken. You know, working from positions of destitution and extreme uh, difficulty that uh, they had to uh, address. Uh, you know, it's I think true of most poets, uh, especially those late in their career. They had a broad spectrum of achievement over the course of their career. And uh, if you only if you only see the climax of the story, you might feel resentful for that person's achievement. But if you don't see the immense amount of sacrifice and challenge and you know exhaustion and disruption and uh, difficulty that has characterized that person's accomplishment up to that point, then the, the story is not going to make much sense. You know? and I think that that's something that might characterize you know the success of like a Ruby Cower, like. You don't understand uh, the effort that was exerted, uh, you know, in order to get to that position. And because you don't understand it, um, you um, are too quick to judge it. Most accomplishment, of, you know, is predicated upon good luck and, and achievement. But I would say that, uh, and I say this from my own experience, that, um, that hard work is, the, is what makes luck. You know, that, that uh, the investment in doing things extraordinary and making and, and a willingness to exert uh, an effort beyond what you think uh, you should. Uh, you know, people say you should go the extra mile, and most people don't. And when they mean go the extra mile, they mean go the extra two miles, right? Like there's a notion that 
the extra mile is always ahead of you, right? There's there's no threshold for that exertion. Um, I think I think that the people who are successful, um, uh, successful people, uh, never impugn them, no matter whether they agree or disagree with that person's attitudes, aesthetically, politically. They just look at success and they understand it or admire it or respect it because they know what has occurred already by virtue of their own experience to make that person's life possible. You know, that in most cases, the success of somebody is not within their immediate control. Right? They, they are doing something blindly. They're, they're working as hard as they can to do something well. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it gets recognized. It doesn't. Uh, but generally, success rewards added value. You've done something sufficiently important enough that people pay attention to it because it matters to them. They care, they care about it. And given that the current, you know, um, social media uh, relations are free, you know, the risk of failure is low. Um, uh, if people complain about their lack of fame, their lack of recognition, I think they have to look very sternly at themselves in the mirror because, you know, somebody like a, a Ruby Cower has managed to uh, become an extraordinarily important poet to a lot of younger writers. Um, with a uh, little more gatekeeping than Instagram, right? To me, that that's an that's an inspiring thing to note that it's possible to imagine that you could, um, uh, uh, what um, uh, deke around the gatekeeping. There are too many avenues around gates now and around those people who profess to be the sovereign uh, arbiters of taste that. Um, uh, they have dissipated. Like it, 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 it's harder to justify your complaints. I'm a victim of cultural exclusion. I'm going. The, nobody should feel so excluded because you have access to these tools that are cheap and inexpensive and widely available uh, that grant you this enormous power. I'm saying that if you're good, you could create an audience of millions, and people have. Right? I mean, you know, people have created audiences. You know, because uh, their kids open, you know, toys, because they build beautiful Lego, you know, sculptures, because uh, they uh, they say provocative and interesting political comments that, you know, defy uh, convention. I mean, like they, they're just simply ordinary people who all of a sudden become part of a large scale conversations amongst, you know, people with similar interests or similar sense of curiosity about that topic. And at one point, you got to wonder, what, well, if you're complaining about the fact that you're I don't know. I, I'm not as famous as Christian Book. You know, I don't understand why uh, Kenneth Goldsmith uh, still persists. You know, in the public imagination, despite um, uh, his cancellation, etc. Whatever they, whatever complaint you might make, simply would say, well, you know, it, I don't have any control over you know how people respond to my work. I just make the best work I can and do my best to ensure that it um, uh, is out in the world. Like, you know, make make sure that I can put it out there. And the fact is that. The ways by which I can put out in the world are the cheapest, least risky they've ever been in the history of humanity. You know that, that some people might actually, I think, have to look sternly in the mirror and say, "Okay, well, if I'm not as famous as I think, I maybe have to figure out why that is." I can't blame others. We're quick to blame others for our failures rather than ourselves, right? I mean, I, and that's not how I felt about my own career. I wasn't quick to blame others. I, you know, I would. I complained about the fact that there wasn't a lot of room made for avant-garde practice uh, in funding at the time. 
and for that reason felt uh, excluded. But I didn't want to see the elimination of my competing, you know, funding bodies. Like I would just be going, like, surely space can be made, you know. Uh, at the moment, like the moment, moment, uh, the internet uh, afforded us all of these tools of distribution and access. Tone and tenor change right? in the early aughts. I was like, there's no excuse now. I, I I can't complain to others because I don't have access to resources. I can't. I can't make uh, my way in the world because all of a sudden I've now been granted every tool I would need to, to make my way in the world. The, I, don't, I don't think I, I can object now. You start humbly and you do make something amazing, right? You know, uh, one step at a time. That was Kenny's comment about UberWeb, right? Every day, you know, he sits with a you know, glass of whiskey at 10 o'clock at night in front of his computer and he adds a few dozen videos to UberWeb. And you do that for 25 years you get into the Library of Congress, right? Yeah. Right. It's on that, this is, uh, you know, I don't know when I'm going to post this podcast, but that's news that's broken recently. So, yeah, let's have a, let's have a sip. Let's have a toast. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a, a grand achievement because UberWeb is a, kind of the inviolable crown jewel of conceptualism. It's one thing that uh, poets have to admit uh, constitutes a major contribution to uh, the history of the internet and uh, the maintenance of the avant-garde in its conversations, you know, culturally. You know, it's a, it's a good thing. And it's done as a gift, right? You know, it's done on, with no money. It's, there's no lucre. It's, it's done in somebody's free time. Uh, to me, that's uh, an amazing uh, uh, gesture of generosity that characterizes uh, many of the values that we regarded as important at the inception of the uh, modern internet in the late 90s, when we first showed up, we said, these are the values we want to adopt as poets. Everything should be made available for free. We should want to disseminate information as quickly as possible to our peers. I know that um, you post uh, your poems on Twitter and you have occasionally expressed some anxiety about seeing that work out there for free. I can't, I don't know, like, maybe you can't get the $100 from a poetry magazine by publishing a palindrome, right? Like, submit something to a, to an online magazine, they'll be kind enough to, you know, publish it under the imprimatur. You might get a little bit of cachet from the fact that it was associated with that um, headline. Uh, my feeling is that uh, you can't be more famous uh, now than you already are, right? You know, if not for Twitter, right? Like, like, like the social interaction of that medium. Has yeah, I'm, I'm needed. I've needed that though. I've needed Twitter because I'm not uh, in academia and I'm not, I don't live in a city, so I don't have that, the networks you can build up there. So this is, I mean, this is exactly my argument that gatekeeping is an issue still, even with the internet. And right now, like, like I would say the greatest gatekeepers are those who critique gatekeeping, right? They are the people who cancel each other, right? They, like they're the people who go out in the world and tell you you can't be a poet and they make sure that you can't be. I'm going, that's the nature of gatekeeping now, is the people who go out into the world and demand, you know, a conformity of thought and will eliminate people from the board, that they are the gatekeepers, not the, not the editors of a magazine, not the, uh, not the publishers of the press. Those people are highly receptive now, you know, to, to um, uh, people's work. They really are, like most people are really are looking forward to seeing what the next big thing is. And here's the thing is that the next big thing doesn't even have to, you know, participate in the endorsement from, you know, an established uh, institutional form of approval, right? You can do it yourself. 
in conceptualism, my, my gang of poets, that has been the been a sovereign kind of value. You know, like there is nothing stopping you from doing it yourself. And here are all the tools, here are all the permissions and theoretical underpinnings that would make it possible for you to just go out and make it happen yourself. You know, I wish I could publish, I wish there was a press in the world that would publish visual poetry and formalist poetry uh, and basically poetry that I liked, the poetry that I want to read. I wish there was such a publisher. I do not see such a publisher. And voila, yeah. what does Anthony Hearns say? He says, I, I can't find such a publisher that does that with such consistency that I care about it. I will, I will, I will redress that oversight. I will make that thing happen in the world. Yeah. And you are now, you know, governing that risk, right? You're responsible for those. People, you know, will show up and complain about uh, the circumstances of publishing in their environment. This, I, you know, the, the, I, I dislike the fact that this publisher, you know, has you know these kinds of oversights in its background, or I dislike their aesthetic agenda there political attitudes, whatever. I would go, okay, well, you can object. That's fine. You, know, you don't have to buy any of that work. You can dislike it. Yeah. But if you think that the world needs to uh, be adjusted to suit your proclivities, you're going, no, like, person's taking a risk um, without your permission, right? Like, they don't, they can continue to take that risk without your permission. If you want to see the world in the form you want to see it, the cost of entry is the lowest it's ever been, and the risk of failure is the lowest it's ever been. So why not start the press you want to see? That's what I like about, you know, Pendarac Press. It's like you started the press you wanted to see in the world. To me, that's an immensely impressive thing to do. If that's gatekeeping, I, I would say gatekeeping in the sense of gift-giving, right? Like I'm going, if gatekeeping is gift-giving, then... Well, it's true. It's true. I've, I've been accused of being a gatekeeper and thinking, well, hang on, I'm kind of someone who's doing what he's doing to avoid gatekeeping yeah like, like if somebody says you're a gatekeeper i think there's some irony in that mm. people who accuse others of not doing their careers right don't have better careers in my experience right the people who complain that i am somehow doing my career wrong that uh you know that uh, uh the risks i'm taking are not uh, supportable i'd say you have to put it to the test and here you are, you're running a press, right? Putting it to the test. To me, that's an immense risk. Right? It's not an easy thing to have decided to do, and you've done it perhaps out of love, out of stupidity, craziness, ignorance, right? You know, like, like all the reasons that we walk, you know, into the dark corner of the room, um, thinking it's a doorway. Uh, I, I, th I think that there's something about that that makes it uh, makes the gesture magnificent, right? You've actually built a loyal following of people who are willing to you know follow you into the the breach of culture and they're very interested and engaged i figured that that was a uh, uh going to be a feature of your practice when i first encountered your work early on in your career i was like, like you know if when i encountered that work early in your postings on twitter i was like uh oh uh oh <laughs> like, <laughs> explain <laughs> next, next generation right it's like uh oh <laughs> i better befriend these people these people cannot be my enemies right <laughs> i don't know who this person is immediately immediately right you know it's like there's uh, some anticipation that this stock is going to rise right my feelings my feelings that there that uh talent always prevails you know that the things that are good usually prevail so long, so long as they, uh, so long as they survive destruction, uh, the great things about human intellection, human culture, human achievement, tend to prevail. 
and that uh, the future, if, we, if, we, if we're you know, looking at our own uh, conditions of posterity, looking back upon the past, uh, the future will care about your talent more than it will about your virtue, right? You know, that the, they will look with pity upon those people who imagine that virtue mattered more than talent. They will always think that talent matters more than virtue. Christian, are you still okay to read? Or? Oh, you want me to read? Okay, yes, absolutely, I can read. Yes, sure. So, Christian, I'd like you to read your contribution to the uh, upcoming Pentrack Press anthology, Myth and Metamorphosis, coming in October 2020. And you've contributed some passages from Eunoia, from chapter E. I'd be delighted to uh, read these uh, excerpts from Eunoia. I'm grateful, of course, to appear in the anthology, Myth and Metamorphosis. And I want to thank uh, you, Anthony, for being so uh, receptive to my work and the work of so many others around the world. Uh, this is an excerpt uh, from Eunoia, uh, uh, a small series of passages from chapter E. Westerners revere the Greek legends. Versemen retell the represented events, the resplendent scenes where, hell-bent, the Greek freemen seek revenge whenever Helen, the new-wed empress, weeps. Restless, she deserts her fleece bed, where, detested, her wedded regent sleeps. When she remembers Greece, her seceded demean, she feels wretched, left here, bereft. Her needs never met, she needs rest. Nevertheless, her demented fevers render her sleepless. Her sleeplessness enfeebles her. She needs help. Nevertheless, her stressed nerves render her cheerless. Her cheerlessness fetters her. Whenever Helen feels these stresses, she trembles. She frets. Her helplessness vexes her. She feels depressed. Even when her cleverest beekeepers fetch her the freshest sweets, she feels neglected. Even when her shrewdest gem seekers fetch her the greenest jewels, she regrets her wretchedness, her dejectedness. Nevertheless, she keeps her deepest regrets secret. She never lets Herself express her echt Weltschmerz. She never vents spleen. She feels tense whenever she keeps her vehemence repressed. Hence, she seeks lewd revelment, les fêtes du rêve, where revelers lend her cheer. Whenever Helen dresses herself en fête, her sewn vestments reflect her resplendence. Whenever she needs new ensembles, her sempstresses sew her ten velveteen dresses, then hem her red checkered sleeves. Her jeweler's beveled gems then bejewel her scepter, l'emblem des régences célestes. Her eldest helpers 
preen her tresses, then her effete servers serve her dessert. The empress prefers sweetened preserves, hence her serfs get her the best gels ever gelled, les peches gelées, blended sherbet, sure served fresh. The scented dessert smells even sweeter when served ere the sweetness melts. Whenever Helen needs effervescent refreshments, she tells her expert brewer, brew me the best beer ever brewed. Whenever she lets her fermenters ferment the perfect beer, revelers wreck the kegs, then feed themselves the lees. Wretchers wretch, belchers belch, jesters express extreme glee. Wenches then sell these lewd pervert sacks. The lechers leer whenever svelte negresses tempt the perverted gentleman. The empress revels. She sheds her velvet dress. Then she lets repellent men pet her tender flesh. Her lewdness renders even these Lecher's speechless. She resembles the lewdest Jezebel. It's amazing, but you know that, of course. Uh, I, I felt this... very good about those passages from chapter E, I must admit. Uh, I wrote them, let me tell you, more than 20 years ago. Very long time. Yeah. And I still feel some amazement uh, in response to that work because I don't know how I wrote it. I... I don't know if I would be capable of doing it today. E was a, was a very large vocabulary, bigger than all the rest, enormously large. Hardest one to write. Some, in some ways, the most fascinating. It's not my fa You know my favorite is O. Uh, and I think you said your, your favorite is I. Most, most people like you. They, most, they call upon me to read you. You is the one that everybody wants to see me read. I mean, I don't think I can read you now without getting fired, right? <laughs> I would not <laughs> about you now. I'm not so sure. It would be safe for me to read it aloud, you know, to students in a class, uh, you know, <laughs> reading in a university, anywhere across the, you know. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the thing I feel proudest about is that the, those, those stories pretty much exhaust that vocabulary. There's a few oversights uh, in the use of the lexicon that really annoy me retrospectively. But uh, I, th I think I'm pretty close to the limit case. I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to upstage that book for a while. Like, like, I would say don't bother. I know how hard it was to write that book. Uh, you know. we, should, we should end anyway, because I've got to edit this fucking thing. <laughs> you've got to edit this. Uh, you've got at least, uh, I'm, I'm saying, I think you're, you're up to at least uh, three podcasts now. <laughs> well, maybe. My monthly limit is three hours, so this could just be it for the month. Let's serialize it. <laughs> so thank you anyway. Thank you, and we'll do this again, of course. Of course. And I'm going to go away and edit this very long podcast down to something manageable. So thank you. I, I, I'm sure it'll be fantastic when it's done. <laughs> Cheers, Anthony. 
To discover more, visit us at pentrightpress.com. 